0: It is 8.08 in the Twin Cities, 72 degrees, a pretty nice weather situation for us. want to let you know that we will take a live update from CBS News at the bottom of the hour on the latest on Hurricane Irma, which, as we've been telling you, is taking a a more westerly track. Uh, The direct hit apparently now will not be the Miami area and the east coast of Florida, but instead actually – Tampa, St. Pete. So again, uh, at the bottom of the hour, CBS News will have a live update on Hurricane Irma. But right now, time for one of my absolute favorite guests, Professor David Schultz of Hamlin University. How are you?
1: I'm doing great on a beautiful day like today.
0: We are, You know, something I, 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 we've been talking to, and I've been talking to a number of people, and really, when you think about it, uh, this is a pretty darn good place to live.
1: The you know the location is great because I think the chances of a hurricane ever hitting here are are pretty low. We do get tornadoes, but no I'm, earthquakes. Uh, no no earthquakes or at least not big ones. On balance, we're probably not in a bad place to be.
0: Absolutely. All right. Well, listen, uh, so much to talk about. Obviously, the the implications of the hurricane politically. Already, President Trump has had to sort of back off some of his proposals. But I want to ask you about something that came down late yesterday. And I think it was a surprise to you. It was a surprise to a lot of people. The Minnesota Supreme Court handing what I see as a a victory, a big victory to Governor Mark Dayton. Uh, Republicans, I was on the the phone with them last night. They insisted this is not a victory uh, in terms of the uh, Minnesota State Supreme Court saying that uh, Governor Dayton's veto earlier this year of all funding for the Minnesota legislature was in fact constitutional. Your thoughts. I mean, isn't the, is this not a surprise, and is this not a victory for Governor Dayton?
1: It's a surprise, sort of, and it's against. So- sort of a victory for the governor, but I'm also going to say, if I can keep the word sort of in here, it's sort of a decision and it's sort of not a decision. And I say that because it's only about 10 pages of the opinion. It's one of the strangest opinions I've ever read in terms of coming out of the Minnesota Supreme Court, any court decision I've ever read, because it does say at one point that the governor's line item veto of the legislative funding was constitutional, but then the very next sentence of the ver- starting the next paragraph says, however, um, that does not um, settle the matter. It then goes on and says that the people of Minnesota um, and their constitution requires that there be a legislature. Um, the court never then then sort of reconciles, between saying how far can the light item veto go before it intrudes upon having an existing legislature, and then it orders mediation and says let's go see how far the funding will exist and let's see um, what mediation will produce, and the decision never overturns the Ramsey County court decision.
0: So so the ruling, even though it says... So the ruling, even though it says that the veto was constitutional, which the lower court said it was not, right? Correct. Uh, it, it doesn't overturn
1: it. It didn't overturn it. It did not anywhere in there say the lower court um, ruling is overturned. Um, what I really Can they do that? It make it. Can they do that? That doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. No, it's an incoherent opinion. I. I I'm, a, there's two different interpretations I have of this opinion. Either A, it is just one of the, the worst crafted opinions I've ever seen, you know, in 25 wow. years of me <laughs> be following in the Minnesota Supreme Court. Or B, what I think is really going on here is that the Minnesota Supreme Court um, took a massive punt, and they basically, they don't want to handle this case. They don't want to reconcile it. They never actually reconciled how far the, can the, the line item veto go before it actually intrudes upon the... the The legislature's um, need to stay in existence. It it, it never solves that issue. It just simply says the light item veto is constitutional. The legislature has a right to stay in existence. However, we're going to send it to mediation to work out. I think what the court basically said is that, essentially said, is we don't want to decide this. You folks go mediate it, come back to us um, if you need to, but we're hoping you don't want us to come back to it. So I think the court essentially is trying to duck the issue, and there's enough language in that opinion to, for, for both the governor and for the legislature to claim a victory. So I, I, just, I read this, and I read it a couple of times. I even called um, a person that I know who I have enormous respect for also for, for reading opinions like this, um, and he came back with the same reading as me. He said, the court is just ducking the issue.
0: Right, but, but they did say he was acting within the law.
1: They did say he was acting within the law. Um, there's no question about that. And that's the part that's so strange about it. They're saying he could do what he had to do. However, like I said, that very next paragraph, the court says that doesn't settle the issue. And as soon as they said his, his line of veto was constitutional, but that doesn't settle the issue, and then the court doesn't actually tell us how, whether well what settles the issue or how far he can go, the court leaves us hanging. It's, it's like it's like watching a I don't know a murder mystery where we now have to wait till next week to come back or something right. like that. Well,
0: okay, so they, they ordered to arbitration. What does that mean?
1: Well, what it means is the two, both the legislature and the governor have to have to get together and, and, and at first to talk about how much money is available for the legislature in terms of being able to continue its operations. And then I'm also presuming that that arbitration or mediation – arbitration, I should mediation, I'm sorry – that mediation um, also is probably about reconciling the differences between the two of them and, and hoping that maybe the governor will um, – the le- governor and legislature will be able to out, work out some kind of an agreement. I'm not exactly sure um, what's supposed to happen in terms of that mediation. And, and will,
0: will, will the, the – in arbitration, does the arbitrator decide? No, this is mediation. It's not oh, arbitration. Medi- oh, mediation. Okay, so what's the difference between
1: mediation and arbitration? Okay. In, medi- in mediation, the two parties have to reach agreement themselves. In arbitration, what it would be is that both sides would present their side of the case and then the arbitrator would decide. So this what- is mediation?
0: Yes. And they're supposed to work it out themselves. Yes. Well, they couldn't.
1: <laughs> that's, I know. That's, no.
0: That's, I mean, how's that going to work?
1: I don't get it. That's exactly the point here. Is if they couldn't work it out before, what makes us think they're going to work it out now? Now, when I'm not a contracts law professor, but I remember one of my contracts law professors saying to me, "The best time um, for people to negotiate when the future is uncertain." Now, so because so, you, you you want you want to. You're not sure what to do. You're afraid of what's going to happen. Maybe that's what the court is hoping. But on the other hand, I could see both sides digging in at this point and saying, well, I have nothing to lose by digging in at this point. We're just going to sit tight and see what happens. And, and,
0: and so so how, is there a timeline for the mediation? Because isn't, isn't the funding, does it run out like October 1st or something? October
1: 1st is... Temporary funding, but, but there, there also are reserves available for the legislature. Um, and so, what we're going to have to find out is how much beyond October 1st operating off of their reserves can they work with. And part of what they're supposed to be talking about is in the mediation is how to address the funding for the legislature. I'm suspecting what the court is hoping is that they'll reach agreement or somehow there's enough agreement for there to be funding for the legislature to get us to, what is it, February, whatever the date is, you know, whenever they're coming back into session or something like that. No, I mean, I, I read I read this opinion, and I'm going to give you a, another reading of the opinion in a second here, but I read this opinion as, again, basically saying, you folks, go figure it out, um, and the court hoping that they're not going to have to and, do it
0: themselves. is there an avenue, if they can't figure it out, which they haven't been able to do, is there an avenue to go, for them to go back to the Supreme Court? Yes, the Supreme I think Court? so.
1: I think so. I think um, there's a possibility of, of basically having the case re-argued at that point. Right now it's going to be, I think, yes, that's the simple answer, yes. And what will be interesting to see is, given the fact that it doesn't look like David Strass, who's on the Minnesota Supreme Court, is going up to the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals. And the reason why I mention this, David Strass um, had recused himself from participating in the decision for reasons we don't know. Um, he was nominated by President Trump for the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals. Um, Senator Franken has basically blue. You you know
0: know something. Let's let's we do have to take a quick break because we got a lot of breaks. But let's actually let's talk about that because that has really gotten buried. That whole issue about why that is a big deal. Um, but but you're saying it factors into this. Let's take a quick break, and then I want to get into that issue because I think it's an important one. And as I said, there's been so much going on, mm-hmm. and w- with the, these you know weather catastrophes, right. a lot of things have not gotten the coverage they should, and that issue is one of them. So let's take a quick break. More with David Schultz after this on News Radio eight three zero WCC. All right, folks, Esme Murphy with you uh at the bottom of the hour. We will take an update. Uh we also give you some weather too, but we will take a live update from CBS News on Hurricane Irma. Uh just before the break, you were starting to get into the fact that uh Senator Franken has basically said he will not support the nomination of Supreme Court Justice David Strass to the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals. Um and Justice Strass recused himself from the Minnesota Supreme Court ruling Is this final, will will the Senator Franken's opposition mean that the, the the Strauss nomination will not go forward?
1: Unless the Senate changes the rules. But one of the prerogatives that home state senators have, or senators have, um, is that when a judge is being nominated to the federal bench um, from, um, from their state, they have the prerogative to basically veto it. It's called blue-slipping it. And this goes back, I'm going to say... A couple hundred years. This is part part of the tradition of the Senate, and so unless the Senate is prepared to overturn that rule, and it's possible they could. Remember, they already earlier this year overturned the filibuster rule, you know, when it came to Supreme Court nominees. But assuming they don't overturn the um, the blue slip rule, and, I, and again, I don't think they will, because senators love this this prerogative of being able to control. Um, court nominees, Strauss's nomination is over. He will presumably go back to the Minnesota Supreme Court, which he's still on. And the reason why I mention this is that if this case now involving the governor and the legislature were to go back up to the Minnesota Supreme Court, it would now be with a full bench, including David Strauss, and that could change the calculus. And the reason why I say this is important is that when when I read the court opinion, and looked at it, it was it was there was no vote there it was signed by the chief justice um, Lori Gilday um, we would call what we call that is a per curiam opinion it's an it's an, an order or an opinion for the court and. It, no vote on it whatsoever. And what I think was going on, and I'm speculating, this is pure speculation here, is is that I think the four Dayton appointees were voting in favor of the governor. I think the two people who were not appointed by Dayton um, voted against the governor. And I don't think the Minnesota Supreme Court wanted to come out with an opinion that was for two along party and ideological lines because that would have been a devastating opinion. So I think they all agreed to basically punt on this and throw it back again to the legislature and the court to be able to resolve, legislature and the governor to be able to resolve, pardon me.
0: All right, but you think basically Strauss is out under the Senate rules unless they change it?
1: Yes, I do. I do think it's out. He's out. um, At least let me put it this way— Franken's Frank let's see, he's up for re-election, what, 2020, I think yes. it is? Okay, so so long as the rule's in place, so long as Franken is Senator, Strauss' nomination um, is done.
0: All right. Because uh, that, that is something, I mean, I guess th- there, there's, there has been so much going on yeah. here. Um, you know, obviously uh, everything overshadowed by the tragedies of, of Harvey and now the, the catastrophe that certainly is looming in Florida with Irma. Um this, you know, really has changed the political dynamic completely. Yes. In ter- in terms of, um, you know, just, it was just a few weeks ago that President Trump was saying uh, that he might uh, actually allow the government to shut down if he didn't get funding for his wall. Right. Uh, and that he would like, you know, not approve any kind of, you know, deal to raise the debt ceiling. That didn't happen, did it?
1: That didn't happen. And And, and it's probably, I mean,
0: I don't see any chance of that happening.
1: I don't see any chance because what we're looking at is that any extra resources that are going to be available are going to eventually probably go for more bailouts for either it's going to be for Texas or Florida or who knows wherever else it's going to be. and. I think it's just going to be very, very hard to persuade people um, from either party in its efficient numbers that they want to spend the money on, on, on the wall. And so I think th- that that has died out. And I also think that at least temporarily, let's say public interest, even among some of the Trump people for the wall has died out as the concerns are shifting towards relief for, for again, for people in Texas, Florida, So forth, so so that is out. But I think what also happened as a result of of the of Harvey is a coalition shift, at least temporarily, that he wanted to get the money for the bailout for or for the reconstruction, should they bailout for for disaster relief for Texas. Um, the hardcore conservatives didn't want to do it. They were saying that they want to tie that to the raising of the debt ceiling and a couple of other different things. Mitch McConnell wanted to do that. Paul Ryan wanted to do that. Instead, Donald Trump cut a deal with the Democrats. And so the moderate Republicans, along with the Democrats, agreed to what? To the $9 billion for for disaster relief, raising the debt ceiling, and that now has infuriated um, Republicans even more alienated Trump from Ryan and from McConnell even more. And so it leaves us with a, a different political configuration in Washington than we had, what, let's say 10 days ago.
0: All right. And, and I know that some conservatives are criticizing the president for making this deal to get this bailout package. And we just have a couple of minutes before we right. got to take a break. I mean, what other choice did he have? I mean, he needed to do this. I mean, I think he should be applauded for that.
1: He's, he's, I, I was going to say in the old days, Uh, a president working across aisles and the democrats and republicans working together in congress to pass legislation isn 't that what we 're supposed to do um, right. i mean that 's what I teach in my intro American politics class is that 's what bipartisanship is about that 's what leadership is about. This might have actually been trump 's finest moment as president so far figuring out a way of, of getting to what I think most of us think most of us think is the right solution or the right answer that we had to raise the debt ceiling and we have to start helping people um, in Texas. I think that was the right answer
0: right and and, and certainly you, you you cannot leave people uh, who are have lost everything right. w- without some help. I think it's also a suggestion that, that you know, President Trump had initially wanted to cut FEMA before these disasters. Uh, you know, the, the whole argument for smaller government, I think that's been turned on its side, don't you think? I
1: think so too, and and again, looking forward now, it'll be interesting to see if now this creates the momentum for what. He still wants that big infrastructure package, and given the scope of the need that we're going to have in this country, again in the South, um, for Reconstruction, you might see a deal being cut where the Democrats and Trump and moderate Republicans do a pretty significant infrastructure package, too.
0: All right. Well, listen, uh, Professor David Schultz, uh, we are going to take a break here. We've got... Uh some have uh, got to pay some bills, pay some spots. And then we also are going to have um, a live update from CBS News. So after that and after our local weather, we will rejoin Professor Schultz uh, to talk about the President Trump's handling of these crises and what this means going forward. Obviously, a lot going on. Uh, CBS News has been tracking this storm. Uh, they've been giving us live updates. We're going to have a live update here in, in just a few moments. But first, uh, we do need to take a quick break. You are listening to News Radio 830 WCCO.
1: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
0: All right, folks. It is 8.35, Esme Murphy, along with Professor David Schultz of Hamlin University. Uh, thanks so much for uh, waiting through that break, getting the update, obviously, from the situation with Irma. Um, we were talking sort of before, and we sort of were getting into it, about the sort of implications of what uh, the these disasters mean for the Trump presidency. And you were saying that, in fact, this deal with the Democrats to come up with this aid package over the objection of many conservatives may have been... President Trump's finest moment.
1: I think so, because again, when we're talking about what we've seen for who knows how many years, the polarization in Congress and polarization between Congress and the presidency, which really sort of dominated, I think, the Obama presidency, and then clearly the Bush presidency before that, where we couldn't get Democrats and Republicans to work together and how many polls do we see out there where people are saying that we really want the polarization to be overcome we want people to work together you know be more bipartisan and that's what we really saw I think you know this week with you know with the aid you know the disaster relief for Texas along with the the um, 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 raising of the you know the debt ceiling limit and so I think that's actually a good sign a good sign that says that that the that Congress and perhaps the United States should not be held a hostage to, um, to extremist sort of party politics and that we can find ways to work together and if, if that's the case if this is just not a, a short-term sort of you know blip or something like that think about some of the possibilities down the line. During the election, I think one of the things that many Democrats and, and many of us, I think, support is the idea of saying that we really do need to spend more money on our infrastructure, you know, even before you know, the destruction that we're seeing in Texas, and, and let us hope you know, that it's not significant in Florida in that, um, is that lots of roads, bridges, highways, and that need to be fixed. Well, if we can come up with a bipartisan solution for that or... What if we can come up with a bipartisan solution for fixing Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act? That's
0: and it looks like that actually might be an option. We don't know, you know in terms of that right. piece of it. Right. There are Republicans and Democrats working together uh, uh, to try to find a solution to, to fix these sky high premiums for those who are on the individual market. Right. Uh, I, it's not clear, though, if the President's on board with that.
1: We don't know. but l- But let's just, again, let's sort of speculate out if we can actually achieve something like that. But I again, I don't know about you, but I actually think that's good for the country. It's good for the country in a sense that we can get things accomplished. We can solve problems that are affecting everyday people. And so I think it's just kind of fascinating when we're, we're seeing some people sharply critical of the president for doing what? I think exactly what presidents should do. Now, the downside of this is the fact that he also, that is Trump, perhaps, Further strained his relationship with Mitch McConnell and with Paul Ryan, and what that again means going forward in terms of being able to move other legislation, we don't know yet.
0: Well, and and, and it remains to be seen. Although it does appear that that you know sort of this philosophy of. The smaller government, it's just not going to work with, with these kinds of disasters. There's nobody else who can do this. There's nobody else who can come to the rescue uh, uh, in, in this kind of catastrophe than the federal government. So I mean, absolutely- that's it. And 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 so so this this notion of of you know uh, cutting back on FEMA, um, I, I, it's just not going to fly.
1: It's not going to fly. And in fact, the argument can be made that we per- perhaps need to increase funding and infre- increase the capacity of FEMA to be able to uh, to respond. And on again, off again, for I'm going to say at least 15, 20, 25 years, if not more, you hear talk say, people talking saying, maybe we need to be coming up with some kind of reserve or some type of system in place so that we have more resources available to address um, a catastrophe like this. Because even though there was only... I think $9 billion, let me say, there was $9 billion appropriated to help out. The, the given wise. I think I've read something like, what, less than like one out of five people have flood insurance in Texas, that the costs for rebuilding Houston alone might be in the hundreds of billions of dollars, and now throw into this what might be occurring, again, with Florida, who knows wherever else, uh, we're looking at potentially... Hundreds of billions of dollars being spent um, to to help, and I'm not to help people who need help. And they do because so many of these people, uh, and many of them might even be Minnesotans now, we're thinking about this down in the Fort Myers area if it gets hit badly because, I mean, as you know, a lot of Minnesotans, you know, have their winter places down there or friends down there. You know, what are they going to do when they've lost everything because of a hurricane?
0: Right, absolutely. You know, I do also wonder if this will move the dial a little bit on the subject of climate change. Uh, because I think most scientists that you talk to will say and have long predicted that because of the warming water temperatures, mm-hmm. which is a fact that the waters are warmer and because of other aspects of, of a changing climate and, and the warming of, of our temperatures, including the water temperatures, that this would definitely lead to more hurricanes and, and more severe weather Events and ones that were you know not only more frequently but also the individual ones would be more severe and there's actually you know two other hurricanes out there, although Katya right. apparently has been sort of dismantled. We had a guest earlier to talk about that, but there's a hurricane Jose yes. that is looming out there uh, that that uh, we had an expert on from NOAA earlier uh that could hit uh you know the same area in in about seven days, just a week
1: yes, yes. You're absolutely, absolutely correct, but I, th- I think you're right. This is absolutely interesting because think about if you're in denial about um, about about global warming and you want to now rebuild, let us say, whether it's Texas or any of the coastal areas, if you decide to want to ignore it, then you're going to do what? You're going to go back and rebuild exactly where you did before and and even though you may be denying it, the reality is the, the, the waters are warming. Maybe, it's, maybe, you can, maybe we can, just for sake of argument, say maybe it's not because of what humans are doing, but we do know, in fact, the waters are warming and so forth, feeding greater fuel for the hurricanes. And so do you basically throw caution to the wind and say, we're just going to go back and do what we did before, or do you now have to say that given the reality of what's happening, we're going to have to rethink how we rebuild along that area. And Houston especially, which is a city that did not have zoning, uh, many people have said that had it had reasonable zoning, some of the problems here could have been could have been lessened or abated or, or mitigated. So I think it's going to be interesting to see how all this plays out. You're right, exactly in terms of how people deal with the issue of, of climate science, how they deal with the issue of, of global warming and then respond in terms of of moving forward in terms of planning development and, and reconstructing as a result of all this
0: right and, and and that's just it um you know what um Houston basically built on a swamp yes. and it's it's um my goodness I mean th- there are wonderful things about Houston but it is uh it, it's this massive sprawling city yeah. it, it, it's you know the no regulation it just kind of spread out. Yes. And, and many of these areas there are, are very low lying. And and then you've got the whole city of New Orleans, which obviously, uh thank goodness that so far at least, that has not been hit. But there, you know, just earlier this summer, even without a hurricane, pumps there were failing. So it, it it's gonna be really interesting to see I think the rebuilding issue is one that is so important. Mm-hmm. And and how, how we're gonna, you know, move on and and, and survive this and what it's gonna to do to, to political leaders in some of these states, I mean let's take a look at Ted Cruz, mm-hmm. who who was somebody who, who is not supportive of, of climate change, or was saying that he doesn't you know he's a skeptic. Also, he was the one Ted Cruz voted against the bailout for or the, the funding for Sandy's recovery. Mm-hmm. And now now it's kinda of on the other foot. Obviously he's supportive of this because it would be uh death politically right. you know to, to be against a bailout for your entire state
1: right absolutely correct and and it'll be it'll be interesting to see how he kind of sort of juggles this especially if now let's take the next step here and again i'm hoping i'm going to be wrong on this but there's going to be probably a demand and a need to do some type of assistance for Florida also. You know, and, and will he now sort of take the same position as he did with Sandy and say, well, I'm well, it's not, not gonna...
0: It's not Texas, so I'm yeah, against not, it. That's right.
1: <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so I think, this is gonna, I think it's going to test his relationship with other senators if he do that, because we already know that he's on the outs with um, many other senators. In fact, I, just, think I, think, the... I, think, I think every senator, I believe. Yeah, I was about to say, he's like the least popular senator um, um, in the U.S. Senate. At this point and, and, but, but you're absolutely correct in terms of how it's going to um, um, test things and, and again putting us back in perspective here, if we as taxpayers, whether it's nine billion, twenty billion or one hundred and fifty billion whatever it's going to be, are going to spend money um, to help others and to help you know people in Texas, Florida, wherever it's going to be. I don't think we want to be spending that money in a way to where we rebuild stuff and six months a year, five years from now, this all happens again and everything gets, gets wiped out again.
0: All right. We're chatting with Professor David Schultz of Hamlin University. We do have to take a quick break, a lot, go, a lot going on tonight. Uh, more with David Schultz after this on News Radio 830 WCCO. It is 849 in the Twin Cities, Esme Murphy, along with Professor David Schultz. Um, we've been talking about the hurricane, the impact politically. You actually, and we were talking about the fact that, that the president really, uh, I think, made a uh, the only move he could and acting, quite frankly, presidential, and I think you think so as well, in terms of getting together with Democrats to pass this aid package for Harvey, which is so desperately needed. But you have some insights into how – these hurricanes, the, these events could actually affect things longer term. And this is really interesting, this point you want to make.
1: Okay, so what we know is after Catri- or when, when Katrina occurred, lots of people left New Orleans. Some people came back. Some moved to other parts of the state. Some moved out of state. A lot of different things happened. And there's some evidence that as a result of that, that the the voting patterns um, shifted in the state. And what I mean by that is not that people changed their voting, but what happened is, guess what? People moved, um, created different districts, created different um, um, locations where people were voting, or just drained away some of the, the Democratic votes in that state when people opted to move elsewhere. And... We know that New Orleans is still a Democratic city, but in many ways, Louisiana, as much of the South, has shifted to become Republican, and Katrina, there's some evidence that led to that. So let's now think about a place like Houston. Even though Texas itself is overall Republican, the urban cores of of Texas, like like just about every place in the United States, um, have become Democratic strongholds. Uh, Houston has elected Democrats to city council, to mayor, and so forth. Well, if a lot of these people decide to not come back to Houston um, or to move to other parts of Texas, how will those changing patterns, immigration patterns, um, affect the politics of Texas, of Houston? And that is, I think, a fascinating question to be thinking down the line. Now, I hope people don't listen to this say, boy, you're kind of like being like a vulture or something like that. Like that in thinking about you know what's going to happen as a result of this disaster but it is just sort of interest and I apologize if people think of that I'm not trying not to be that way
0: well I, <laughs> I think I think there are people who who are you know considering and you're talking about the impact of Katrina which, which primarily I yeah. mean obviously there were others that other right. areas you know including Mississippi the Gulf Coast that were right. affected but primarily everybody focused on New Orleans New Orleans is a city with 400,000 people, Right. Uh, Houston has several
1: million. City. It's Fourth the f- largest city in the United States. Right. And let's say if, if some of those people, let's say even, I don't know, 10% of those who evacuated opt not to rebuild, and they move somewhere else. How does that affect Houston economically, but more importantly, politically? Who are the voters? Who are the people who are not coming back? Um, and, and how will that affect politics in that city? And when these individuals move elsewhere, let's say, other parts of Texas, other parts of Travis County, Harris County, um, wherever they might be moving to in the state or moving to, who knows, Oklahoma or whatever like that. How will those changes affect um, politics, um, both in Texas and those other areas? A parallel I would draw. It has nothing to do with catastrophe, but we know a lot of people about 20 years ago, started moving out of California because of housing cost issues. They moved to places such as Montana, Idaho, Colorado, and that. And we have pretty good evidence that the California out-migration transformed politics in those states. So here, how will the potential, um, let's say, you, know, m- you know, immigration from places like Houston and the rebuilding um, affect politics in those communities and in the state? Right.
0: Uh, and interesting, I'm actually, uh, you know, I really had never really thought of this and I, I guess I had not um I, I, this is really interesting. I'm looking actually at a graph mm-hmm. that that looks at New Orleans population. Mm-hmm. New Orleans population um was uh pre-Katrina about close to 500,000. Mm-hmm. It dipped to 200,000 in 2005 which was of course Katrina and now it's back to about four hundred thousand, so they've lost twenty uh, percent of their population. Yes, which is which is a remarkable difference. This is still a smaller city. You think about twenty percent of Houston or twenty percent of some of these areas in Florida,
1: and that's going to make a huge difference. Right, and it makes a huge difference in terms of the fact that you will have twenty percent less of. Of let's say, partic- you know, um, um, it's going to be mostly Democrats who live in urban cores. We know that, same in New Orleans. So you're going to have 20 percent less, certainly not all Democrats, but but you're going to change the configuration because there'll be maybe 20 percent fewer voters, you know, in Houston than you had before. What will that mean politically for Houston? And and, and, and what,
0: what, what does it mean for Texas? I mean, you know, exactly. Texas is is obviously a Republican stronghold, as you you've been saying. You know, certainly the core urban areas. Uh, more heavily democratic but but Texas is, is Republican country these
1: days. It is Republican country, and mm, even though Democrats salivate at the prospect of thinking it could flip someday, it's not, it's not going to be for a while if at all. But let's say now that 20% does stay within Texas and moves to the suburbs around Houston or moves somewhere else. How will that emigration – I'm going to call it – I'll call it political emigration for a term how will that political emigration um, affect the state of Texas and maybe other states if they move outside the state? We, we don't know, but again, with New Orleans, we do know that that loss in population has meant that it's a less solidly of a Democratic city, um, both for, for, um, and less solidly of a congressional district than it was before. Because with 20% fewer pop, f- population, that means New Orleans gets thrown in with some other areas as part of a congressional district.
0: Right, and and obviously, um, you know, one of the things, even even the catastrophe of Andrew. What what they're talking about with Irma is the size of this thing is so much bigger the storm surge and and I think we'll know my goodness we'll know you know within twenty four hours you know how severe this really is but but the scenario that's being painted is, is is so dire I mean this really you know and and what you're talking about in terms of population shifts, I mean this really has the cha- you know the the potential to reshape the dynamic mm-hmm. of just about. Every political direction in this country.
1: I agree, and and, and that's on top of how it affects Congress and voting, how it affects political alignments. Um, lots of lots of different scores in terms of the implications of of these two hurricanes together, in terms of how it r- might remake the political landscape, both short term and long term in the South and in the United States.
0: And you know, when Katrina hit, certainly I, I think President George W. Bush was faulted. Uh, yes greatly for for the federal response i haven't seen that i think most people think the federal response has been good
1: yeah i think i think the feds have learned a lot and have have increased their capacity as a result and i think trump was just lucky that his ch- cuts that he was proposing for fema had, had not had, happened yet had not happened yet otherwise we might have seen a repeat of katrina
0: Right. And, and in terms of, you know, the, the, the notice, I think it was uh, President Bush saying, Brownie, you did a great job or whatever. Right. And certainly he was there. and I mean, I think there were miscues. I think, uh, you know, certainly there was a lot made of, of the First Lady wearing heels, you know, getting on the, the helicopter or, you know, wearing a FLOTUS hat or whatever. I, I, I'm not sure how much traction that got. I think certainly Trump critics will, will, will seize on that. But right. I think overall, I think most people appear to be giving the president some, some strong marks here.
1: I think so, too. And I also think there's a little bit of, um, I'm not sure if the word is sympathy or whatever, but acknowledgement of the fact that we're dealing with a problem of such epic proportions that that even it taxes the ability of the United States government to handle it.
0: All right. Well, listen, Professor David Schultz, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us this evening on this very busy evening.
1: Anytime. Good evening to all.
0: Okay, take care. All right. David Schultz, please check out his blog, Schultz's Take. Uh, it's always great, always informative. Uh, really great analysis and, and his population analysis, really interesting. I mean I had never really – I don't recall reading that or seeing that and that's why I enjoy so much talking with him. But the, this, this notion of a population shift and I wonder if that's going to happen in Florida as well. I mean will we see people saying they don't want to risk it? They don't want to risk be rebuilding. They don't want to go through the trauma. I mean, imagine, you know, this this coming and and the anxiety, and then certainly, you know, the, the preparations mostly based on the west coast of Florida, the Atlantic side, and now this thing is is going roaring up the Gulf side. I mean, the Atlantic side is going to get hit too, but really, uh, catastrophic damage being forecast. And most of the emphasis here the past few days was on that Atlantic side. And one can only pray that, that, that people who are on the east side uh, are, are ready for this as well. In other words, that Gulf Coast, that Tampa St. Pete area, that whole I mean, the Naples area, you know, really such amazingly uh, gorgeous area. Anyway listen, I do want to thank the producer of this show, Susan Blanche, and also want to thank Jonathan Lowe and also Kevin Reed, our two studio coordinators. Keep it here, folks. you're listening to News Radio 830. This is WCCO.